0: Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number five of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and joining me today is Brian Flannery a protective security practitioner, and thought leader. Brian is the president of Foresight Security Consulting, where he brings a holistic approach to security and safety developed over 22 years of protective security and security management experience. Brian has served in the military, law enforcement, and as a consultant for state and federal government agencies, corporate clients, schools, and houses of worship. Brian's unique approach is gained through a vast experience in risk mitigation, personal safety, security vulnerability assessments, and in developing threat assessment and management systems. He has consulted on thousands and case-managed hundreds of threat assessments, leading to the development of management strategies and safety planning for his clients. He has organized protective details and security strategies for judges, celebrities, and an array of political leaders. In addition to his practitioner background, Brian is also a dynamic speaker who has presented to national audiences in personal safety and security, threat assessments, and targeted violence detection and response. Brian is an 18-year member of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, also known by its acronym, ATAP, and currently serves as the President of the Board of the Northwest Chapter. He is a recipient of the Medal of Valor from both Oregon State Sheriff's Association and Marion County Sheriff's Office. Recently, Brian received one of ONTEC's 2021 Protective Intelligence Honors Thought Leader Awards, a distinction also shared by Episode 2's guest, Aaron Arp. Brian, it is such a pleasure to have you on the program today. I'm really looking forward to this bit of a deep dive into the topic of threat assessments and violence prevention, especially following the tragic school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and the hospital shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma as well as the shooting in Buffalo, New York. I feel like I can just go on and on with different examples of mass casualty violence incidents throughout the United States. And um, I think when I called you up, that's really what sadly makes this episode so relevant to the now.
1: Yeah, Ron, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. i always excited to be on and talk to another practitioner or another person passionate about violence prevention. And, you know, this is a, this is a good opportunity. It'll be, it's a, it's a good platform for people to learn and listen and, um, you know, practitioners can help get guided to maybe some more resources and people who are just interested in learning more can um, hopefully find their way into maybe what they can do in in their communities to kind of stem off this disease of violence that we're dealing with.
0: Absolutely. And, And I've been looking at ways to bring you on the podcast here for a number of months. And unfortunately, the shooting in Texas happened and we linked up and, and I, I said, you know what, this is the time to have you on. Um, it's in our kind of conversations day to day in the practitioner field, but it's not always on the American public's mind. And I think right now it's uh, first and foremost. So I, I, I'm really happy to have you on today.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah. The, you know, it's crazy, right? Like you said, we were figuring out, you were trying to figure out how to get Nexus to like have this conversation. What's the conversation look like and, and what makes sense? And then it takes something so tragic like the school shooting or the, the shooting in Buffalo and and the stuff that we're seeing and these, these increases to where it's like, man, okay, we, we really need to do this now. And it's the sad world about security too. You know, I mean, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of clients, like their, their budgets really don't reflect their desire to do a, a lot of improvements and stuff like that via security um, until something tragic happens. And so we're, we're really glad to be on here. Really glad to be talking about it, and, and more importantly, just really glad that while these tragic events happen and they're so hard to understand and digest, that that it does in fact push the gas pedal on people moving into prevention into their organizations. And I've been standing on a soapbox screaming about threat assessment for the last twenty years. And if we can get that moving, that's I mean, that's how we're going to do it. You know, that's how we're going to change the world.
0: Absolutely. And like you said, you've been on the Soapbox for 20-some for years, and I want to build a little bit of context for those listening um, who haven't had a chance to meet you. Or don't really know your background. And you joined the U.S. Air Force. When you were there, you were part of the security police conducting infrastructure security assessments for priority a resources. And after that, you went into law enforcement and gained a really solid protective security background. And I'd love for you to fill that in. I know I got to cherry pick your bio there. You've done a lot of interesting things over the last two decades. So go ahead and fill that gap in.
1: You know, thanks for reminding me about the time frame and how long ago it was that I was in the military. That was... Uh... <laughs> reminds me i'm getting pretty old but you know what's interesting about that like you said you know i did infrastructure security assessments and what's really funny is i joined the military and you know i was doing nuclear missile security in montana uh as a security forces operator back then and your bosses don't really like when a 20 year old or 21 year old kid was like you know if i was going to attack this site this is the stuff i would do And so they're like oh really let's send you to a school so that you can learn a little bit about assessments Then, and you can maybe make some recommendations, um, being voluntold to go to a school when you, when you have an idea, I think maybe that lends itself more to 20 year olds, not having an idea in the military. And if you do, don't share it. Uh, or or (laughs) what, but that's how I found myself there. Right. I mean, you know, and, and that was a great experience, but, I was so young and didn't really know a lot. Um, though the military gave me great experience. I have unbelievable connections. I have great friends still. Um, and soon to be a coworker. Um, we'll talk about that some other time, but very excited about a lot of that stuff. But yeah, I got out of the military. The whole the whole reason I went into the Air Force was because my dad was a cop in Southern California and all I wanted to be when I grew up was in law enforcement. Wanted to be a cop. Somehow I wound up in Oregon and you know, it's one, it's just a, it's a weird story how I get there, but I moved to Oregon in 1999 and immediately applied with a sheriff's office here. Well, I applied with three or four agencies, but the first one to call was Marion County down in Salem, Oregon. Um, and so I was, a. you know, I was a patrol officer in 2000. I got on and I was working patrol the first three years. Uh, I was involved in a pretty traumatic incident. Um, my, my third year. And I really wanted a break from patrol, just decided, you know, I need to take a break. I don't really want to want to get involved in another incident like that. Time to time to step out for a bit. And there was a position open in the schools. Um, and so I became a school resource officer uh, at the end of three transitioning into four midway through the school year. And, you know, that's great, right? Like the school resource officer job was awesome. I loved that I was young. I was fired up. I was excited to meet kids. And I loved uh, loved the opportunity there. But the, what ended up happening, like the thing that changed my life, really, I, and I, I don't overstate that. The thing that happened when I joined the schools was that I was so, so, so fortunate um, to be a part of the Salem-Kaiser threat management team, the student threat assessment team in Salem-Kaiser, Oregon. At the time, still is really, but at the time was the preeminent student threat assessment team in the country. This is one of the first multidisciplinary community-based teams in the nation to be doing this work founded in 1999. And at the time, John Vendrell, who was a Salem-Kaiser School psychologist at the time, kind of took me under his wing. And, um, you know, Dave Okada, who is now the national president of ATAP, right? Like he was on that team as well. And so I got to to join with these guys and work Student threat assessment cases, like when you read the bio, you read my bio a minute ago, and I I laughed. It sounds crazy when you say he's consulted on thousands of cases, but we were at the time when student threat assessment was at its height in the Salem Kaiser School District, and we were staffing 100 to 150 cases a year. Wow! And I was on that team in whether the student team or the adult team for like 15 or 20 years. So you do the math, and it's like, wow, right? I was on the team 15 years, and then. From there, the private stuff that we're doing now, but it's just, it's crazy to think that that's the amount of threat assessment cases and people, I I don't know, like when you say that number, if really it conveys the idea that they're not all these crazy exceptional cases where every one of these kids or every one of these people that we're working with are moving towards a targeted act of violence. They are, however, involved in a situation of concern or displaying behaviors of concern that rise to the level of a community-based team that can provide resource. And so, you know, it's a big number, but all that is, is practice on how to navigate relationship, how to leverage your community resources, how to push those around into places where they're providing, you know, services to these kids in need. And really that's what it is, right? So I was in the schools, you know, I'm back and I'm only get too far ahead of myself here, but like I was in the schools for six years. And then in 2009, uh, my rotation had come up. And so I thought I was going back to patrol. You know, I was getting ready to bid a patrol shift and a Lieutenant that I worked for that, that, uh, I really admired is a, another, a great mentor of mine came to me and said, listen, we've got this position at the courts, uh, and we'd like you to come down and work at the courts. And so, Um, the Marion County Circuit Court, you know, it's the county seat and the state capital there. So we ran all the high-risk trials, all the prisoner transports, but they really were integrated into the adult threat assessment team. And so all I wanted to do was stay in threat assessment. So that's that was it. I said, fine, if I can stay in threat assessment, that's what I want to do. And so I went downtown and I ran, you know, with these guys doing courts, and we were doing protection of judges and all of the threats to them. Plus, physical security at the courts. And that's the part that's like, I never really was into physical security. That wasn't something that I was like, oh man, I, I just really want to learn about cameras and access control and door alarms. But it was a byproduct of staying in threat assessment when I was at the, the courts. So I worked in the courts for a few years. And then in 2012, mm-hmm. Oregon uh, decided to build a marshal's office. So They passed legislation to create a judicial marshal's office inside the judicial branch of government. So it was a law enforcement unit inside the judicial branch of government. And I was one of two, the first two uh, deputy marshals in the state of Oregon. And I was tasked with operations. So my job was executive protection of the chief justice and the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals and the Tax Court. Oh, wow. So they did public events. The court listened to arguments in public. And so we had to plan all of that stuff. And it looked just like what you think it did, right? I was driving around in suburban. The chief was with me, and I took him to public events, and we did that stuff. But I also had a really good opportunity to build the threat management program. They had always thought about doing it, didn't really have um, a lot of fire behind that thing. So when the office was created and and um, I was hired, they kind of gave me free rein to build that system. So we built a statewide, you know, behavioral threat assessment system, and then rolled out training. And protocols around the state and that is currently being run by my old partner and i mean they're just doing a fantastic job and and really i don't know what it was craziness maybe at uh, in 2018 with two little kids and a house payment i thought you know the threat assessment thing really is amazing but why isn't it happening more in the private space so i thought gosh i'm gonna quit my guaranteed paycheck and i'm gonna start a company thank God my wife has a good job with good medical benefits because (laughs) she was supportive and allowed me to do that. Um, and so we've been doing that ever since that was in 2018 Foresight's now, four years old. Um, we're growing like crazy and we're doing great work with great clients and, uh, we're just, you know, we're, we're really happy to be in the space. Um, yeah. And, and, and really be able to provide training and that community based resource stuff like we talked about, um, in a little broader sense, right? i'm not I'm not bound by I'm sorry, this is the government. you can't talk to this organization. You can't do this now we can we can navigate it however we want, which is great.
0: I think that's so important. Um, and you've had such a background um that led to this point, the jump into the private sector, and certainly Richard, our CEO, we both spent, a lot of time um, in and around the government sector. And you're right. There are limitations that you have in that space. Right. The two of us met when I was on the receiving end as a staffer of death threats. And the first time we met, he was doing the threat assessment for our boss, a state senator, and uh, the rest of our office. Again, the threat assessment space is an interesting place. Right now, It's relevant to the American people because it's something that's of concern. Uh, The children are a huge concern for parents, um, but it's not just limited to the school environment, right? You've been in the house of worship space, um, and organizations of all sizes have to take account for the threats of violence uh, to both their personnel and their companies. And so I'd love for you to speak kind of more at a macro level right now of what that really means. and, you know, we have companies listening, we have other individuals listening beyond just the schools. And I really want to get to the micro level of those schools. But I also want more of a 35,000 foot view of what exactly it is you do.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, that's a it's a great place to start. It's a, it's a good question. And it's a hard thing for a lot of people to navigate, you know. So I think, you know, anybody listening to this podcast is probably going to recognize like the things that are happening in society. Inflation is up. Drug use is up. Crime is up really nationally there's not many places untouched by that stuff and a lot of that has, it has you know there's a million reasons for it but coming out of two years of lockdown from a global pandemic where people's resources were limited a lot of people were were laid off or fired during a reduction in force or something like that and then community resources were tapped first of all because of all that stuff and it was remote works so and now we're returned to office and all this stuff is occurring and people are kind of at an all-time high for this kind of aggressive behavior that we're seeing and it's 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 really 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 interesting you know we see it all over we can see it in people upset at starbucks videos they're they're going viral everywhere on tiktok people flipping out and just and, and losing their mind about all this stuff and and even that you know we can say it's a microcosm but inside that group of people there are people that are really struggling and They have a grievance or they have something like that. And we have to try and figure out as a society how to step into those gaps and step into those margins and really provide resource to people. So like you had asked about the church, you know, I kind of got involved with a, with a house of worship a couple of years ago, like by happenstance. And you know, we, my whole family's in the church, we're super Irish run. So my, my grandfather was a pastor. Both my brothers are pastors and me and my dad were cops, right? Like super Irish. We're just not Catholic and we don't live in Boston. <laughs> but you know, everybody's a copper clergy. So I've got a real heart for the church because I grew up there and I understand what that looks like. You know, I don't care if it's a mega church, I don't care if it's a small, you know, church wherever, like a lot of the problems are the same, you know. How the lead pastor is, what the worship pastors like and how they all interact and and the dynamics of of you know, how that body works, um, is something I'm pretty familiar with. And certainly, you know, all different houses of worship have their nuances and stuff like that, but, but navigating that culture is important. And I don't, I don't think that we can, we can not step into help the houses of worship specifically because we need them to step into society. We need them to step into the margins. We need them to to use their resources to, to help those people that are living in the gaps of society. And a lot of times, those people that find themselves in those moments, those are the ones that if we can just provide the resource and mitigation strategy and all of that stuff to allow the church to do their work, people are going to be better off, right? Like even the person threatening us or the person coming to hurt us is better if we can intervene and strategize you know, resources for that person to keep them off of the pathway to violence or move them away from the pathway to violence.
0: Much to that point, um, the culture of the church is sometimes very different than that of other organizations or, say, a school. And um, how do you breach through that culture? Because um, obviously, if you've, if you've got a threat assessment team or some of the more industry-specific speak that we use, um, it can be somewhat of a turnoff. Because again, The churches are about open arms, and they really should be. They're not going to be able to reach those gaps of society if they're not set up that way. And is there something that you use, a different vernacular, a different approach that's more appropriate for that culture and that space?
1: Did you like read something so that you could set this question up? We didn't prep this. It's pretty good. (laughs) But yeah, we totally do that, right? Like The words threat assessment in a church are scary, and a a church body doesn't want to hear that. Um, Pastors don't want to hear that. So, you know, what we've termed it, um, is a special resource team. These are, you know, it's still multidisciplinary, uh, several times you have, you know, somebody who's a pastoral counselor somebody who's in the community, uh, doing like community service work through, um, a community service center, maybe that the church works with. You have the women's pastor, you have men's pastor, you have a campus pastor, whatever. You have this group of people that kind of bring a different view of that multidisciplinary approach. But then you, you know, we called it the special resource team because that's what we're doing. We're being creative with our resources to provide in these moments better pastoral care for the church body. And it's great. The hard part is um, it takes time, it takes dedication, it takes discipline, it takes intentionality. And um, it's hard in the church to, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles is to get buy-in long-term. There is, there's a heart for it. There's a want for it. You know, when you say it's different from doing it in corporations and doing it in schools, that's absolutely true. The principles are the same everywhere, right? The principles of behavioral threat assessment and management are the same everywhere. How they are navigated in different organizations is the magic, right? Like learning the culture of the place you're working with and then trying to bring them along to do this work is the important part. You know, what's interesting is a lot of corporations will say stuff like this guy's scary. We can't keep him. We want to fire him and all of that stuff. And sometimes you have to say goodbye to employees. They need to be terminated, but you know, how do we do that? How do we say goodbye? What kind of soft landing package is there? I mean, it's like in it's like in law enforcement, right? You sell tickets. If you had to write a ticket, which anybody that worked with me previously would tell you, I was terrible at this because I hated writing tickets. You know, it's that whole conversation around. You know, they let you do this, and I was like, Yeah, I don't care. I hate it. But so you got to write a few, right? You 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 don't want your bosses yelling at you, so I would write tickets occasionally. But even the ones that I would write, it's always like it's the sales pitch. You're not just cutting somebody paper, and and. Talking down to them and doing this thing, you actually want to educate through the citation so that they, at the end they're like, "I know, I'm really sorry." Right? Thank you for calling my attention to this. Thing. So that's you really want this buy-in with behavioral threat assessment to a place where when we're saying goodbye to an employee or we're we're having to terminate somebody, we really want to set them up for success long-term, even if it's not with us. Right? So the same thing is true in the church. The difference there, though, is because of their calling and because of their want, they actually love these people, right? Like with the heart that they believe, right? They, they believe that they have the heart of their creator, mm-hmm. so they actually love the people we're talking about. So it's not, this is why I've, I've always said, doing behavioral threat assessment in a church is one of my favorite places to do it. It's scary, and it's hard, and it's sticky, and it's, it's difficult and every single person at the table only wants nothing but the best for this entire person's life no matter how vulgar no matter how angry they are that is different when that person presents scary at a school or at a at a, at a job site then they're just like dude get away get rid of this problem because they're scary and so really navigating that is difficult and so you know we really have to learn Um, we have to learn our clients' cultures, whether it's a church, whether it's a corporation or a media organization or Mm -hmm. any of the number of places we work with, we have to learn what their culture is. And then we build to that. There is not a one size fits all security sticker. There's not a one size fits all threat assessment sticker. And a lot of places have been doing it that way for a long time. And I think the world is starting to go, wait a minute. Like, that's not, that's not real, right? Like, well, you need cameras and access control. Sure you do. But you also need behavioral threat assessment. You also need mental health help in the community. You also, 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 right? There's, it's not one thing, it's 20. And so really trying to figure that out and then build to those places is, is so much fun. And what's successful, I think.
0: Man, I totally agree with you there, Brian. Um, it really isn't just going to be about finding this one solution that's going to serve as a proverbial silver bullet. Um, it's going to be more about, like you've said, building a program around this issue. Now, I'd like us to dig in a little on this so-called pathway to violence. You've discussed it before elsewhere at Speaking Engagements and on other podcasts, but for those who are new to this topic or are listening to you for the first time, I'd like to provide a deeper understanding, because if we get to the day where an individual has decided to commit an act of violence, we're just too late. Once they have made that decision, they're going to act, and on that day, the physical security apparatus is at its best going to contain or delay them until they're met by an interdiction element, whether it's law enforcement or otherwise. Or at worst, it's going to have little to no effect in slowing or stopping their attack. So really, what becomes incredibly important and what you've focused on over the last few decades is the preventative side of violence, or the left of bang, as they say in the military and in law enforcement circles. So expanding on the houses of worship, which you've described as just this very unique culture, I'd like to jump over to the school environment, which, as stated earlier, is really the relevancy of now, as parents, at the end of the day, are really just concerned about the safety of their kids. And like the church, these schools lend their own unique culture, where on top of that, it's this patchwork across the country, as there are some schools and school districts who are very engaged with their law enforcement partners, much like you were during your school resource days. And then there's others who don't want any law enforcement contact with their students, and whether or not that's correct is a debate that uh, you can have separately with people um, outside of this discussion. But regardless of those two extremes, um, we still have to figure out how to address and prevent that pathway to violence. So, from your perspective as a practitioner, how have you been able to do this in a school setting effectively?
1: It's yeah, I mean, man, what a what a honor and a, a terrible burden um, that, that threat assessors and the prevention people have, you know, I think the thing that's crazy to think about is this idea that prevention is not really quantifiable. Can't say this thing, this thing, and this thing caused this mass attack to not occur, right? We don't know really i mean we can we can think that that's what we do we believe that that's what we do threat assessment people we would say absolutely these are the things that keep people from doing this stuff or at least identify when people are on that pathway but you know the prevention piece for me was the game changer um when you work patrol you know i'm going back to like my school resource officers days when i learned about not just threat assessment but the salem kaiser model of student threat assessment and, and kind of how that foundation was poured for me. I, you know, first spent my first three, four years every Friday night. I'm arresting the same guy for the same thing on the same corner, and it's never going to change until he dies. That's always going to happen. That guy is there. Yeah. But knowing that you're stepping into these people's lives when they're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, and really writing a problem, and sometimes it's not, it, it's it's really messy, right? We're talking about. All of the things that we think about when we talk about the things that stack up against kids, right? Sexual assault, uh, home life, all of this stuff that can, that can affect how they are engaging in schools and stuff like that. But for me, when you talk about, you know, what is it about prevention and and, and all of that stuff, you know, what I've come to realize and and I've just realized this recently, uh, maybe the last, maybe the last two years is that then I get choked up talking about it, man, because it really is. It's how you change the world from our, our aspect, right? Everybody has their why you talked about, you know, the kids across the country. I have two kids, right? I have a 10 year old and a seven year old who go to elementary school and they have to do lockdown drills. They hide in their classroom with their lights off because people go to schools and they, they hurt our kids and they hurt our teachers. And so Every presentation I give, I start with a picture of them. And I'm like, this is why I will continue to get up when I'm tired. And I will stand up here and I will say this stuff until I am blue in the face and hoarse and can't talk because we have to do better at changing the world for these kids. They should not be thinking about this. They should not have to deal with it. And so, you know, Again, it's not one thing. It's 10, right? Like the no gun signs and the cameras and the access control, all that stuff, that's fine. But a lot of that is symptomatic of the disease, right? The disease is violence. Everything from there is a symptom. You know, the tools are symptoms. The, The breakdown in society is a symptom. And then what we do is we throw drugs at it. We throw access control. We throw cameras at it. More guns, less guns. Armed guys, no armed guys, all of this stuff are drugs that we throw at symptoms for a disease that we haven't figured out how to cure. And I'm saying we can cure it. I'm saying if we're bold enough and we step into this enough, really what it boils down to quality behavioral threat assessment, the byproduct of that every single time is better care for people. If we are taking care of people, we're providing resource. We're stacking the odds in their favor, even when we don't like the person, even when they've gone against us, even when they're threatening our lives, we stack the odds in their favor with community resource and help and support and mitigation strategy. And sometimes, unfortunately, that involves law enforcement and arrest and prison and all of that stuff. But if we do all of that, we are caring for our society. That is the game. That is how we change the world hard stop. like That's what happens.
0: It really is, Brian. And you've been at the forefront of this effort for a very long time. Now, could you kind of flesh out this trajectory of the pathway of violence? Is it a point-to-point destination or more of a sliding scale type of thing? Uh, could you explain really what you're looking for in an individual's behavior or background that kind of puts them on this radar? And perhaps most important, who do you involve in these schools, places of worship, and organizations to help make this all stick? Who are these key stakeholders who need to be included in this discussion for it to be effective? You're there as this uh, threat assessment practitioner, but who else really needs to be involved in that discussion to ensure it's a successful program?
1: So you have to envision, since we're on a on a call on a podcast and there's not like a, a video in front of us or a slideshow or whatever, you have to kind of envision a, a level of stairs, right? Like five stairs. And at the bottom, on the if, if the stairs were we're moving across your screen from from low to high on the bottom you'd have like grievance right so everybody this is the pathway to violence so everybody that commits a targeted act of violence starts with a grievance they have a grievance against a person against a company against a group of people um whatever that may look like for them and the thing that's important about grievance is oftentimes we as a society say well that's a stupid thing to be upset about maybe But the person's upset about it. We can't say, well, that's dumb. It is. (laughs) Because it's real for them, right? You know, it's it's this whole, you know, part of that, like the one that for me, I, I try to tell people is like, we've seen this uprising in the incel movement, right? So these are guys that say they're involuntary celibate. They cannot have sex with girls. They cannot meet women. They cannot engage in these societal norms. And, you know, that's their grievance. And as a society, we look at that and we go, well, that's a dumb thing to kill people over. Well, maybe, but it's real for them. And if it's real for them, we have to look at that seriously. So if the bottom step is grievance, the next step is ideation. So this is where the fantasy begins. I'm so upset about whatever the thing is, how would I fix this? And, you know, that's where they start envisioning themselves powerful and infamous and all of this stuff that's occurring that very quickly leads to planning and preparation. Now, planning and preparation is where the leakage is going to happen. That's where you're going to see the amassing of weapons. You're going to see them show up at the location and start taking pictures and writing anything or making phone calls, trying to learn more about the client and actually being predatory, right? That's the difference between like violence and aggression. Aggression is reactive and impulsive and has a very high affect. Violence and the planning and preparation towards violence is predatory and premeditated and has a very low act. It's really hard to see, but we can spot it. Molloy's done all the work in this that that informs kind of what we think about and, and how we navigate this. So the thing that's hard for most organizations, whatever they are, church, school, corporation, whatever, the thing that's hard for them is recognizing that it's trying to undo the years of being told, oh, he must have snapped. Oh, he was crazy. Oh my gosh, like we never saw this coming. Only to find out three days later that we all saw it coming. There were signs and signals and flags all over the place, but nobody really paid attention to it. So we say, well, they snapped. They must have been crazy because that makes us feel better. It also limits liability for corporations when they say it, yep. right? They're limiting liability. So back that off in a training and teach people they don't snap. In fact, there are people all over this world right now who are moving up and down this continuum, up and down this pathway. And very few of them will actually get to the final step, which is implementation of their plan. Very few will find will get there. But some will, and that's the ones we'll see. But those are the ones that are going to happen. Any of them that don't happen, either law enforcement got involved, the threat assessment team got involved, or the person just decided not to do it. And they moved on with their life. And we may never know how many people are moving up and down that pathway. We certainly know the ones we miss. We certainly know the ones that complete their attack. Um, so when you're doing that, right, this stuff can't live in a vacuum. If the grievance is, I mean, whatever the grievance is, and somebody vocalizes it, man. I hate my job, blah, 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 whatever. If a coworker hears that, most times. There's a lot of like, yeah, well, John says that stuff all the time. It's probably not accurate. But there's one piece of the puzzle right there. When John does a shooting in four months, this coworker is going to say, yeah, I heard him say that he really hated his job four months ago. And I don't think anybody talked to him. I don't think there was a reporting mechanism in place, whatever. So you need to have line staff everywhere, whatever the organization, paying attention to behaviors of concern. They got to be trained on this. This should be part of annual training. Like, Hey, here are all the things we want our workforce to be exhibiting. And when we see these behaviors of concern, know that we want to help as an organization. And so we want to step into these situations and really help them through it. Then you're going to need all levels of legal HR, Security, potentially facility facilities, depending on like how your security team functions, right? Uh EHS, um, potentially. Um, and then I'm always a big fan of having at least a high-level decision maker on the team. Doesn't have to be the CEO or something like that, but somewhere near an executive suite or or really high in the organization, because what they're gonna own, oh, you need legal, right? So legal HR, um, it has to be multidisciplinary if for no other reason than you have a bunch of people giving their perspective on the process and the and the problem and then the resources available because not one person will think of everything right you you need that shared liability if one person holds it they own it if five people own it and you're doing the right thing then at least you have some defensibility there if it ever goes bad um but really then beyond that you got to have relationship with law enforcement you got to have relationship with local mental health um and that's kind of where we come in so when an organization brings us in our job is really as the consultant, not just to provide our subject matter expertise and and the practitioner um the practitioner lens but also leverage our network right i mean if, if we need to call the va and pass information to them because somebody happens to be uh you know um a client of the VA, and then they're going through a hard time at work, we want to let the VA know. Now, the VA is not going to tell us anything, but this is the cool thing about threat assessment. Like, I don't need them to tell me information about the person, but I need them to hear me because it might affect how they're treating. Them. And if that's the case, that's another community-based resource that's speaking into this person's life from a prevention standpoint.
0: Man, Brian, that's just also radically important. And like you said, It's about moving away from the mindset of, well, that person just snapped, or they were just crazy, because that kind of thinking doesn't solve anything, and it definitely doesn't prevent it from happening again with somebody else in the future. Now, Brian, uh, before we continue on, I'd like to take a quick break to listen to a message from our episode sponsor, Safe Schools for Alex, a nonprofit that provides the most current school safety practices and resources to students, parents, school districts, and law enforcement so that all children can learn in a safe environment. It's a great organization, and to our audience, we'll be back with more with Brian Flannery in just a moment. Today's episode is sponsored by Safe Schools for Alex, a 501c3 nonprofit organization determined to provide the most current school safety best practices and resources to students, parents, school districts, and law enforcement so that all children can learn in a safe environment. The organization was founded by Max Schrechter, a national school safety advocate. His youngest son, Alex, was one of the 17 innocent victims murdered in the Parkland school shooting. In June 2019, Max's vision became a reality when President Trump created the Federal School Safety Clearinghouse inside the Department of Homeland Security. Safe Schools for Alex has developed several initiatives, including the Champions of Safety, which aims to bring together school safety thought leaders, experts, and advocates in each of the 50 states for a common purpose of reducing violence in schools. The Safe Schools Student Chapter, which stated goal is to assist and encourage each school to have a student club that actively supports school safety. The School Safety Dashboard, which, for the first time, created a space for parents, schools, legislatures, and law enforcement to have a user-friendly tool that details the incidents of violence and drugs inside K-12 public schools. This tool currently exists in Florida, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Virginia. And finally, the Let the Music Play On initiative. This provides students with free one-on-one private online music lessons, something close to the organization's heart because Alex was a musician in the state's top music program. If you would like to learn more, donate or get involved with the Safe Schools for Alex organization. Please visit their website at safeschoolsforalex.org. Welcome back everybody. Um again, I'm here with Brian Flannery, our guest today, and we're covering violence prevention and threat assessments um in a wide scope today, covering schools, places of worship, organizations across the board and um and Brian, I want to focus a little bit for the practitioners that are listening. We've do, we've done a lot on um, definitions and causes and some solutions, and I really want to uh, open it up and, and give you the opportunity to talk about a training that you are hosting coming up in in August, and it's uh, the violence prevention through behavioral threat assessment, and this is geared towards other professionals and to build their threat assessment capabilities. So I just want to give you the floor for a couple minutes, talk about this incredibly important training that's coming up at the end of the summer.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Ron. Um, we're really excited about it. You know, we actually had this planned a couple of years ago and it was like in March of 20. So you can imagine that didn't happen. It did not. Uh, we had to cancel. No, it did not. <laughs> um, but we're in partnership with the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office here in Oregon. And uh, they're, you know, they're going to send 10, 10 of their people. SROs are coming to that. It's great. Uh, but it's really a threat assessment 101 class. Uh, we're going to cover the basics of behavioral threat assessment, pathway to violence, pre-incident indicators, you know, behaviors of concern, mitigation and management strategies, reporting mechanisms, all of that stuff, breakdown and reporting, why it doesn't happen, how to set up probable teams. Uh, our consulting psychologist, Dr. Kenny, is going to be there to talk about personality disorders and how that affects behavioral threat assessment so it's going to be a one-day uh class really exciting um we've got you know obviously for those in oregon uh, there's an opportunity to attend it live but we're also going to be offering a live stream so um yeah i mean people can go to our website which is foresight-sc.com and through the resource and trainings tab there's a, a registration link there but It'll be a really good training. Live streaming it um, as far and wide as we can. It'll be super, super exciting. Um, yeah, so that's a great opportunity, and then also for for practitioners out there and and people that may be listening to this saying, "Gosh, I'm, I'm doing this work, but I don't have a team. I don't have a multidisciplinary thing." And and I'm I'm saying, "Yeah, this is scary, but I don't really have a place to go with it." Um, if you've never heard of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals this is your group. You need to go to atapworldwide.org, join. I'll sponsor you. I mean, I'm sure Ron will figure out a way to put my email up there. You can connect with me through our website. But you know, we, we need people who are doing this work to be getting the continuing education, to be offered the body of knowledge that ATAP has put together for uh, those that want to study for and try and achieve the certified threat management um, certification. Uh, you know, the CTM is a, is a super, I'm not even a CTM, it's a difficult test. Uh, a lot of studying involved, but really the body of knowledge is second to none. It's incredible stuff. And this is the group of people that we, you know, we constantly are training. We're constantly bringing in speakers. Um, the national conference is fantastic. And it's a group of people that speak the same language when it comes to this stuff. So if I have a problem anywhere in the country, I can find an ATAP member. And I'm going to be able to ask a question about what I'm doing, where it is, what's the local culture, how do I navigate this thing? And they're going to have their network of resources. So you're not limited just to your, you know, your, your community, whatever that looks like. This is a much broader community nationwide and even globally with the other taps, right? KTAP in Canada, um, EATAP in Europe and, you know, Asia Pacific and Africa and all of these places have this. And, and these people are all doing the same work, speaking the same language, and they're all multidisciplinary, right? It's made up of HR and legal and and corporate security and law enforcement and mental health practitioners and all of these people stepping into this work. Um, it is an incredible resource and I mean, it has legitimately changed my life. Uh, and not only that, it has added unbelievable expertise and value to the threat assessments that we're currently managing and the things that we work, uh, we would not be able to do it without the network of our ATAP partners. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're like, gosh, where do I start? How do I do this? That's where you start, atapworldwide.org. Um, and from there, uh, there are you know all kinds of training opportunities and, and they're everywhere in the country. So there's 14 chapters, there's one near you, you'll be able to find something to do. So it's a really, really great organization. And I, I, I cannot stress enough that people stepping into this work, doing this work, not sure about, you know, I think I'm doing this work. It sounds like the stuff you're saying is stuff that I'm doing. Now, how do I get more info? That's how.
0: Wonderful. And, and I think uh, just for perspective, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think the membership right now is holding right around 3000 nationally um, for the US uh, chapters.
1: You're right about 3,500. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: it is a small group of individuals when you, when you count how many people millions are in the industry of security management and protective security. Um, and I think that organization is ripe for some growth, um, especially with, like you said, uh, the trajectory that society has been on since we've been locked up in the pandemic. We're coming out now. People who haven't had to socialize yeah. in person are now being somewhat uh, forced back into the workplace. And um, some people love going in there like myself. I can't stay away. Right. Other people find that they do better work at home. And, and again, that, that's just another focal point. Um, of contention for people to deal with. And uh, so I think this organization, again, is ready for some growth. Um, I think set up for it. And I think if you're a professional working in the space um, or somebody who's been recently tasked with this and want to learn more about what the ins and outs of threat assessments are and get your network built, this is definitely the way to go. So Brian will make sure to have um, some registration links, um, some opportunities cool. in the show notes, so uh, so our listeners can can grab at that opportunity. Great. And I and I don't want to miss an opportunity before we uh before we uh, wrap things up to talk about your company. Um, we haven't really dived into it at all. Um, but like you said, you, you jumped from government work into the private sector, and uh, you guys have been experiencing some growth and it's been an interesting volatile market if if anybody's listened to the previous podcast episode where we talked about making that transition and it can be a difficult thing but fortunately um, you have enough growth to where you're taking on more individuals so i want to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the opportunities you have um, that may stick for somebody who's listening right now who found themselves unexpectedly in the job market but would end up being a perfect fit for you and your team and in addition I'd love to hear a little bit more of what your team has done over these four years and the impact that they've had.
1: I'm super proud of our, of our team. Um, I'm super proud of of the work we're doing. Um, I'm super fortunate that kind of my right and left hand in this are uh, two of my best friends. Um, Eric Tonsfeld, who is our operations manager, uh, came to me, I don't know, 18, just over 18 months ago, uh, from a long history of investigations. And this guy, um, I remember, I remember when he joined us was like, Brian, I don't really know anything about security. And I said, Eric, you know, everything that I can't teach you, I can teach you security, I can teach you threat assessment, but how to talk to people, how to care for people, how to step into their lives. That is something that is very difficult to find. And, and he had that, um, our protective and Eric's our ops manager, um, our protective services manager, Uh, who runs all of our national uh, executive protection stuff is a a, a great friend named matt higgins Um, matt's got a long history in law enforcement and then into uh, the private world working for one of the big gigantic ep firms as a team lead uh, in the bay area for a while Uh, so we're really really fortunate there and then the talent that we have been able to to pull from just in the last few months i mean you know Um, ex secret service agents, federal agents, guys that have left pretty massive executive protection gigs in the Bay area. Um, people that are moving across country for us and, and some of the stuff. And I I really do attribute that a, to the idea that you're not just going to do one thing here. You're not going to show up and be just an executive protection agent, which is great. Like we want that, uh, but we also want to do real protective intelligence, informed security. So we, we leverage all of the stuff we've been talking about to inform how we build teams, how we develop executive protection strategies and and stuff like that. Um, you know, we, we do have, like you said, a couple of opportunities. Um, I think again, if you go to our website, foresight-sc.com, we'll have uh, this week, we're going to be posting uh, for two more executive protection agents. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, I, I don't want to, I also don't want to downplay, um, the The amazingness of the Northwest, I know that for those that might not live here, you've heard some stuff recently about the Northwest. You've heard some stuff about Portland. Um, it's been in the news once or twice, I think in the last couple of years couple times, <laughs> but it's great, right it's 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 slowly coming back, and Portland's a cool town um, it's It's a really great place to be. but uh, from a consulting standpoint we're we're nationwide and we're doing work everywhere, and we're doing fun work. so yeah. We're always looking, we're always looking for good talent. I mean, we have, we have these two jobs, but really if the, if the right fit was there and we have a need for it, we're going to, we're going to fill that, um, because we're not going to let stuff slip. But, uh, yeah, we have built a great team Ron. I'm, I, I couldn't be more proud. Uh, these guys are incredible. The work they do is, I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. We're, I'm impressed by it. I'm, I'm impressed by it daily. So it's really, really fun. Uh, to have that have that company and have my friends and these guys that are that are around doing this work with so it's really really cool and thanks for the opportunity to say something about it i you know i uh get almost for a little loss of words it's like talking to another dad at a baseball game about how good your kid's doing in the outfield or something i don't know i'm kind of at a loss of words because it's pretty great
0: all that means is that you've hired the right people and uh the success of a company is is only guaranteed by its team right and, um, if you're doing everything right, um, to take care of, of your team, uh, they're going to do amazing things for you. And we've had some shared experiences over on the side of the street as well. Um, that is wonderful. I, I, I thank you for taking the time to showcase, um, the talent of your team. Again, um, the teams are what, what, what makes it come through. So I think that's wonderful again. And you're right. The Pacific Northwest is a beautiful place. Um. And my biases maybe just outside of Portland. Um, just <laughs> it's its own it's its own bird. Um, but but definitely. Um, I wouldn't want to dissuade anybody that's looking for work to check that off just because of of that environment. I think you guys are have a wonderful space up there. Um, and you're doing some amazing things from some of the conversations we've had previous to this discussion tonight. Um, and on that note, I want uh, people to be able to find you before we, we jet off and, and conclude. I want people to, to be able to find Brian Flannery, um, especially those who are in the threat assessment space and haven't had a chance to join ATAP or reach out to you. So where can you be found?
1: Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. Um, I'm certainly on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Brian with a Y. So um, I'm sure my name, you'll, you'll put it in the show notes or whatever. Or I guess it's like, hey, Brian's the guy that talked on the podcast, probably in the title or something. Is that what you title it? Brian's the guy that talked on the podcast? Brian's the guy. That's what it's going to be titled. Probably, <laughs> It's probably more creative than that, Ron, if I know you at all. Yeah, so uh, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can also, like I said, if you want to contact me or, or if you have questions about ATAP or any of that, um, you can always reach out through our website. Um, we've got a contact uh, card goes directly to me uh, service at foresight dash sc.com is the email there, or you can check out the website. Like I said, it's uh foresight dash sc.com. And, uh, yeah, any questions, you know, to throw this out there, I know that there's a lot of law enforcement right now that's out there looking at trying to transition. There's people that are moving from retirements or they're leaving their work. Uh, that's something I'm, I'm passionate about is kind of helping that transition happen. So I know you have an episode on it and stuff like that. Um, might not be the fastest to respond, but I'm happy to answer questions as needed um, if people have those. So that's another place through the website you can reach out and and I'm happy to kind of get to those as I can.
0: I would take that up. um, Definitely as an offer that you just threw out. Um, If you're listening today, um, go ahead and do that. He's opened the door. uh, Take full advantage of it.
1: Well, you know, I really appreciate you having me on here, Ron. Nothing in this world outside of my wife and kids that I'm more passionate about than than this violence prevention through behavioral threat assessment. This idea that we can actually do it. Um, we just need more people to hear it. We need more people to jump on board because it's the it's the it's the magic, you know.
0: So exactly right, and it is something that you are doing daily over at your company and having a massive impact um, that unfortunately isn't realized because when you prevent something from happening, it's uh, something that doesn't make the news. These incidents of violence uh, that do make the headlines are, are the few that, that go bad. Um, so on that note, um, we've only hit the tip of the iceberg here. So I definitely would love to bring you back at some point, dive into even more of this. Um, and there's so much more to talk about. Um, so, but, uh, being cognizant of your time, you've shared so much of it with us and I can't thank you enough. So Brian, thank you for joining us on, uh, another episode of the global security and protection group podcast.
1: Yeah, Ron, thanks again for having me, man. It's, it's my honor. I really, really appreciate it. Um. I really appreciate the time. Thanks again. Once
0: again, always um, looking forward to having you back in the future. And for those listening to this podcast, thank you for your continued support. And we hope you continue to enjoy the conversations on the Global Security Protection Group podcast. Until next time, stay safe.